0: Hey there, welcome to the National Working Waterfront Podcast, the show where we chat about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development all along our coasts. I'm your host, Ashley Bennis, a planning specialist with Texas Sea Grant. This show is a collaboration between the National Working Waterfront Network and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Today, we are looking at the role that working waterfronts play in the blue economy, a subject not unfamiliar with listeners who may have already heard ASPN's newest podcast, hosted by Admiral Tim Gallaudet, the American Blue Economy podcast. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should totally check it out. On this show, we are going to explore the blue economies of two Atlantic coastal states, Rhode Island and South Carolina. What we are hoping to communicate is how communities like those in Rhode Island and South Carolina can access information to value their coastlines. We're also going to hear about a new and innovative strategy aimed at valuing non-market features on the waterfront, such as wetlands, sand dunes, open space, oyster reefs, and other types of mariculture. Before we get started. I wanted to go over some numbers to help us understand the economic magnitude of the blue economy. You might have heard these before or something very similar, but just think. According to data collected from NOAA, approximately 127 million people, or 40% of the US population, live in coastal counties. In 2018, the American blue economy supported 2.3 million jobs and contributed approximately 373 billion to the nation's gross domestic product through the activities such as tourism and recreation, shipping and transportation, commercial and recreational fishing, power generation, research, and related goods and services. It is estimated that the global ocean economy will double in value to 3 trillion by 2030. In Rhode Island, a state with 384 miles of shoreline, the value of the blue economy was clocked at around 12 billion in 2018. The same year, in South Carolina, a state with 2,876 miles of shoreline, 5 billion was contributed to the GDP courtesy of the state's blue economy. As I said before on the show, these are some big numbers, people. To get started, we have a veteran of the American Shoreline Podcast Network returning to grace us with her knowledge and insight on this topic, Jen McCann. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Hey, Ashley, it's good to hear your voice again. Uh, So yeah, so I'm Jen McCann, and I am the Director of Extension for the Rhode Island Sea Grant College Program. And I'm also the director for the US Coastal Programs uh, for the Coastal Resources Center, which is part of the University of Rhode Island and the Graduate School of Oceanography.
0: As, as we were prepping for the show, Jen, I uh, talked with a lot of different people and your name came up so much. You are just the premier person to reach out to when it comes to waterfront related things in Rhode Island.
1: Wow. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 was, I was like, oh, I know Jen, she's been here before. <laughs> Um, and joining Jen and I today is Susan Daly. She also hails from the beautiful state of Rhode Island. Susan, welcome to the show. We are so glad that you could join us today. Would you please introduce yourself?
2: Thanks, Ashley. Um, I'm Susan Daly, and I'm the Vice President of Strategy for the Rhode Island Marine Trades Association and also for the Composite Alliance of Rhode Island. And I'm thrilled to be on a show with Jen, who, as you rightly said, everybody knows, so it's very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, and uh, may I start out by asking
0: um, how you ladies know each other or have worked together with each other in the past?
1: Well, everybody in Rhode Island knows everybody, first of all, right, Susan? Very true. (laughs) And um, actually, Susan and I are both alum of a program called Leadership Rhode Island, so we take leadership very strongly in Rhode Island and um, just being a part of that leadership program where we learn about different aspects of the state of Rhode Island to um, encourage connectivity and networking amongst leaders in Rhode Island. Um, actually, that's where I, I knew Susan. So when I think of the blue economy, I think of Susan.
0: That's excellent. That, that takes me right into the first question because As we know, we're talking about valuing the blue economy and focusing in on the state level and how states are kind of looking at this type of information and using it to plan for the future. So to set the stage, um, each of you ladies, first Susan and then Jen, um, how would you, in your own words, define the blue economy? And it can be general, like overall, or how do you define it in your state? either one will work.
2: Well, I um, prefer to define it from our state because in general, blue economy is just so all encompassing. But I think in Rhode Island, we have a number of strengths and um, incredible sort of uh, expertise and capabilities that really focus. I, I kind of put URI in the center of it all, given a lot of the really instrumental work that they've done on really understanding and mapping um, and detailing how the waters in Narragansett Bay and um, out into Rhode Island Sound and the ocean are used uh, and, and being a sort of a key convener. Um, but because of that too, and because of what Rhode Island is, has um, incredibly strong uh, recreational marine industry, boating industry, it has, the Naval Underwater Warfare Center, a naval base here that has um, really a focus on um, a lot of things that go under the water. Um, We also have uh, aquaculture and the like, but I think um, we really know if something floats on the water or goes under the water, I think we have a good understanding of either how to make it, repair it, service it, build it, you name it. And um, I think that's where our strengths lay. And Jen, do you want to answer? Yeah.
1: And um, just to build on what Susan's saying, uh, you know, we are the ocean state and um, therefore a lot of our, our I, I would also include part of our blue economy is the commitment that our state, whether it be our, our government agency, so our coastal program, Our um, Rhode Island um, commerce—that we we recognize that the blue economy is a is a huge engine for um, for our little state, and that there for for forever for a very long time there has been investment by our government entities in um, promoting the blue economy, whether that be helping with, with our, in, in enhancing our port infrastructure to really investing in proactive planning and management of our coast and ocean so that we are designing our coast versus just letting it happen. And then the other thing um, just, to, just to say is we have some amazing strong trade organizations, like um, we have one for, uh, it's a regional entity for our defense industry, and then we have a uh, you know another trade organization. The one that Susan represents is the you know Rhode Island, um, the Rhode Island. I always say RIMTA, Rhode Island Marine Trades Association. Where you know um, there's so many examples of these associations when when the going gets tough, it's the trade organizations that are that that become extremely responsive and fill in the gaps and promote innovation, and um, to um, to to keep our blue economy strong and diverse. So I would add those to our blue economy definition.
0: That's excellent. Thank you, ladies. I know that's not an easy question to answer. And through doing research and background into this um, topic for today's show, um, I learned from some people at NOAA that um, – whether or not they can use the term blue economy really depends on, you know, the specific administrations that in the white house and, you know, what's going on in those political levels. So, um, I appreciate you ladies giving us, given us setting the table for us, but, um, so, uh, Jen, you'd mentioned something that I did want to dive a little more into is that trade association and, and the different trades of Rhode Island. Um, Susan, what kind of, can you kind of give a little more detail into, you know, what RIMTA, the Rhode Island Marine Trades Association, um, gets involved with, who do you work with, and, and just a little bit more background on that.
2: Sure. Um, we focus and represent the businesses that are connected in one way or another with what we call the recreational um, marine or the recreational boating um, segment of the industry. So that would be the, you know, the boats that you see out in the harbors or, you know, um, you know, on public ramps and the like, and all the aspects around it. So it could be, um, the designers of boats, the builders, people who repair it, the marinas, people who provide, or organizations that provide the services around it, whether it's electronics or mechanical or engine repair, um sailing schools charter companies insurance companies it's it's really the f- uh, kind of an amazing array and very diverse in rhode island um, we like to think we're the sort of center of the universe when it comes to the uh, recreational marine industry and and a place that people just they bring their boats to they come to sail or to go out on the water to go fishing um, but they also come here to get their boats repaired on, or they come to uh, have you know service or work done. Um, so it's a very we're sort of almost vertically integrated and and fully integrated. Um, what we aren't is we don't rec- you know we don't represent um, large commercial vessels like ferries or shipping. We aren't involved with uh, the defense sector and or commercial fishing. It's really things that that touch. Um, sort of you and me and and your neighbors. Yeah,
0: thank you. Yeah, you beat me to my next question. Was you so not focusing on the commercial side of stuff? We're just sticking to the recreational. But it sounds like um, there's a lot going on in in that aspect, and um, so enough to keep you busy. And I know it, we had talked previously of um, the Marine Trades Association acting like an intermediary between businesses and organizations that regulate the use of the waterfront and waterways. Um, how is that, is that accurate or how, how does that work?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the term in, intermediary or um, in a lot of ways, we sort of think of ourselves as sort of super connectors too. Um, you know, that we're our mission and we are, you know, there's over a thousand Companies or businesses associated with the recreational marine industry in Rhode Island, some of which are very small mom and pop shops, but some that are much bigger. But we're member based. Um, but our job is to re- you know to help those businesses. So we have a f- focus on one side of economic development, um, which means and, and Jen had re- referred we we interact with the government, the state government, the local government. Our uh, some of our regulatory agencies like the defi- depend, excuse me, the Department of Environmental Management or um, some of the other uh, state agencies. Uh, but we also look and find uh, how can we help the companies access to funding for projects they're working on, uh, or if they run into some issues that might be regulatory or business-oriented, how can we advocate on their behalf? Um, and we also we we make sure and we're there to help the state and the federal government, our federal federal delegation, understand the the value and the contribution and the importance of this particular uh, segment um, to the state economy and also nationally. And I would add to also one of the other legs that's very important has to do with workforce and ensuring that there's a, a strong. Um, pipeline of workers and, 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 and ways to keep training and retraining and keep the workforce very strong. So we, we do a lot of educational programs. So we're starting actually all the way down in fourth grade now, um, helping kids sort of see what, what it's like to be on the water, what career, you know, what opportunities may be. And as you move through middle and high school, college, it, it becomes a little more career oriented, That's, that's amazing. That's excellent. I'm so
0: happy to hear that. Um, yeah, it sounds like, um, understanding and knowing the value of all of those industries, um, and being able to talk about that with your legislature is very important. So you can have those great programs like workforce development and training. Um, so, One of the reasons we're here talking today with Jen and stuff is um, that you were recently the author of a report that was put out in 2020, um, The Value of Rhode Island's Blue Economy. Um, Jen, can you tell us about what that report is, um, how it came to be, like what motivated the writing of the report and, and the goals for the report?
1: sure and and again susan contributed to the report as well so we really appreciate her input Uh, so uh, a couple of years ago we were asked um, by the state of rhode island by um, indirectly by the governor governor raimondo who's now the secretary of commerce for the united states um, to define what is the value of rhode island's blue economy and uh, we were, you know, because we're part of uh, Rhode Island Sea Grant, which is a NOAA program. We immediately um, contacted our our NOAA people um, and our, our resource economists there, the people who are um, developing um, data and and ident- looking at trends for the ocean economy for the country. Uh, so we reached out to them to identify. You know what what is the data what is the information um about rhode island's blue economy and what we realized is one that was such an amazing resource the federal government's data was it was it was incredible and it was a real opportunity to look at um and compare rhode island to all the other states in the united states but what we also realized is um Uh, that if you, when we started talking to many of the leaders here in Rhode Island, um, including Susan, is that we don't define our blue economy necessarily the way NOAA is collecting their data. Um, So for example, um, you know, you just heard a great description of marine trades. And for us in, in Rhode Island blue economy, marine trades is front and center. But Marine trades isn't one of the data or the categories that, the, um, that NOAA, you know, um, collects data for. So, however, RIMTA um, had produced this great economic report. And um, Rhode Island is so small that this report, which was done um, uh, by URI, um, contracted by RIMTA, um, it, it, was able to really talk to the different sectors within the marine trades industry so that we got a better number, um, um, as far as what the value and what the total effects are from marine trades. Um, in addition, uh, I think Susan mentioned the defense industry is huge here in Rhode Island, yet, um. And, and so are the uh, academic and research institutions. Yet uh, NOAA's, uh, you know, economics, National Ocean Watch um, data sets do not collect information for that, nor the offshore renewable energy industry, which is now, um, you know, we're we're the pioneers, as Governor Raimondo used to say, for offshore renewable energy industry. So what we what we needed to do is really dig down and talk to each. Sector of Rhode Island's blue economy—the ones um, Susan mentioned—to find what what is the what, what is the economic um, data, what is the information that we have about that. But the reason why we we call this report the value of Rhode Island's blue economy is that we realize that the perspectives from the blue economy leaders and the commitment that we have to uh, to network and to bolster our blue economy in Rhode Island is if not more valuable than the economics behind it. Um, So for example, with the federal data, we were able to see that um, uh, 9% of Rhode Islanders are connected to and working in the blue economy. Um, Whereas, and and that may not seem like a lot, but if you look at um, California or Texas, or even our neighbors, Connecticut and Massachusetts, only 3% of their workforce Works within the blue economy, so um, so we may have a smaller, you know, economy, but more people in the state of Rhode Island are um, committed and are working within it. Um, so so um, so again, what we did was in in addition during this t- same time frame, our governor Raimondo at the time was putting together another um, a Rhode Island economic development strategy, and the author of that report. Um, really referred to our report, our strategies, and also the data that we had collected to um, incorporate that into the state's um, Innovate 2.0, so their economic development strategy. So the purpose was really to, um, one thing I love, um, so we have our Senator Whitehouse here, who we all um, love. He says that our blue economy here in Rhode Island are like stars. We have so many amazing stars in our blue economy. But what we really need to do is create a constellation out of all of those amazing stars. And our hope was that this report would sort of be um, a, a good start to look at what our blue economy is, what it, what it, and and how we can move forward um, with its strengths.
0: I I do really enjoy that quote. I know you've talked about that before, but that's a really great imagery as to as to how something like this could be used and that's pretty amazing um to have a report that was referenced for other economic development reports um that the the state um officials are using and uh i know with susan we had talked about um they had done you know uh economic impact reports and she had shared some with me had a report like this um Other than an economic impact, you know, of the trades industry had a report like this, um, like what you just produced in 2020 uh, existed in Rhode Island before?
1: Uh, So a comprehensive report of Rhode Island's blue economy, not. Not to that my knowledge, uh, um, we had, you know, amazing. Um, so we have another trade organization, Cinedia, um, and they, they target on the defense industry within the region. They produced an amazing report. Um, you also had um, the commercial fisheries um, who, who created a report. But clearly, um, and then as I mentioned, marine trades. Um, but clearly a lot of these, you know, the blue economy is more than just those sectors that I just mentioned. And to some degree, um, the methodologies were a little different, um, different times that they were developed, you know, they were pretty recent, but they're, you know, different times. And, um, but what I, what we appreciated about all of these individual reports is these blue economy leaders were defining um, the blue economy the way Rhode Islanders see it. And again, when I look at, Blue economy uh, efforts in California or in Norway or you know the European Union, for example, everybody defines blue economy differently. And and leave it to Rhode Island to define the blue economy just a little differently um, to highlight our uniqueness and you know again the commitment that we have and the, the value and, and the you know it, it's all, it's part of who we are in the Ocean State.
0: Well, you guys are the ocean state, as you said, so why not be a little different? Um, and you had mentioned um, the some of the uh, data that you had used and gone through NOAA um, to get that data. Um, is that referring to the E-NOW data, the Economics National Ocean Watch data? Yes.
1: And again, um, every year it's, it's um, they they're expanding it, and again, it's wonderful tr- for trends. You know, to really see how the different sectors are um, are changing, uh, and and again, it was it and, and it's wonderful to be able to compare that E now data, the Rhode Island E now data with other states. So it was it was extremely helpful. Um, uh, but again, you know, we we were lucky in Rhode Island to have you know organizations like rimta who did their own studies that were more comprehensive i would say um and uh, and so we we it was really hard and it was frustrating and i swear it was some of the nightmares that i had during this time frame where it was like what data do we use how do we use it um I am not an economist, and so again, the the NOAA uh, ocean economy uh, economists were helping as well as we had um, some URI resource economists to make sure that what we were saying was accurate and um, and we were not double counting
0: right. Yeah, so it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, this eNow information, which is available on the NOAA website it's it's publicly available. You can look at it anytime you want. Um, it sounds like it provides a good foundation for exploring the value of your economy and then to take other data sets from your specific state and add it on top of it is is a good way to go about it.
1: Yeah, and not add. Don't add. <laughs> don't, don't add. <laughs> and, and for example, you know, if you look at the E-NOW data, you know, um, they value Rhode Island's blue economy or ocean economy to be $2.8 billion. Um, whereas when we looked at um, individual um, reports that, were, that the Rhode Island sector um, you know, had developed, um, and, and that includes the defense industry, and as I mentioned, e does not include that, you know, our value um, is up to $5.2 So, um, so it's a it's a significant difference, and again, it it just may be because our our blue economy is so different. We don't, you know, again, E. Now doesn't do defense. E. Now doesn't do offshore renewable energy. They don't do, um, you know, um, so so marine trades is defined differently. So, um, so we really had to um, understand both the federal. the federal data as well as the local data and again with with significant guidance from economists um, no double dipping um, uh, that's that's a very conservative those are conservative numbers too the five point two
0: right yeah that's a good point and always always good to to add that caveat. Um, for uh, Susan, I in in the report, um, and as you were certainly a part of it, um, they talked about these uh, different effects that we're looking at: um, direct effects, indirect effects, and induced effects. Susan, can you please um, give us examples of, of what those mean?
2: Well, like Jen, I too am not an economist, but I will do my best. <laughs> but again, we, you know, we when we. Did this report with URI? We were doing it, you know, from the business perspective. So um, the direct effects really have to do with the the businesses and organizations that um, we had counted in the recreational marine industry. So direct effects would be things like wages. It would be sales, um, or you know, sales of services or products. So. Things you can see a business um, uh, creating or contributing, you know, directly related from their efforts and their work. Um, so a boat, it would be, we sold the boat, we did this, or we charge this much for a service. Uh, the indirect r- effects are really sort of um, related to the supply chain. Uh, so all the, the, whether it's the materials that you might buy from a fabric um, producer to make cushions for a boat or the, um, you know, hoses or things that you might put into a boat when you're building out the, you know, the exhaust systems. Um, so, um, or if it's contracted or, um, you know, you've got people coming in and, you know, providing you with some sort of, of, uh, consulting work or the like. So it's really the supply chain. And then the induced, as far as I understand it, is really what is, you know, you've got people working, you've got a business creating uh, revenue and the like. What are the other uh, impacts they will have in your um, state? So the, the workers go and they go and buy uniforms or they go and buy lunches in their area um, or the rent that gets paid to a uh, landlord or whatever it may be. So each one of them is related to the marine trades, but sort of ring frames out directly from the product.
0: Thank you, yeah, as I am also not an economist. So some some of those terms through the report, you almost need the dictionary next to them just to, just to get there. But um, we will be um, interviewing, or I will be interviewing an economist later on in the episode from South Carolina And as part of the report he wrote to value their blue economy, he included some non-market benefits um, in the report. And um, I noticed that this wasn't quite talked about in the Rhode Island report. And so, Jen, I was wondering if um, non-market values uh, was a consideration or maybe a future consideration.
1: So um, we did not talk about non market. However, um we did we did recognize and again if you look at our report we also tell stories of the leaders. Um because again that the stories and and the commitment that people have in the blue economy are important. So um we did come up with a a, a thing what we're calling as enhancers, all right? And these are so these like quality of place. How do you, you know, so that's sort of non market, but just um, uh, you know, the, the quality of, of living here and whether it be open space or access to the water, for example, is something that is a, a significant contributor to um, to our blue economy, whether it be um, people want to move here and work within the blue economy or um, people have access and you are able to build a constituency who recognizes the value of this blue economy um, and and therefore they will um, we we have bond issues like every other state. And usually I I can't think of a time when it hasn't, you know, um, preservation of our of our coastal and our open space. uh, Those bond issues are always um, approved because, again, it's we uh, there's a the residents of Rhode Island recognize the value of clean water and of, of good quality of life. Also part of those enhancers are things like workforce development and innovation. Um, so, uh, so we and, and again Susan's part of an amazing um, uh, program called 401 Tech Bridge which contributes to innovation of our blue economy so that we're not just settling on the traditional blue economy sector, and, and although we value the traditional blue economy sector, but we're creating new um, and innovative aspects of blue economy, whether it be composites or offshore renewable energy. And we're looking at, um, you know, the defense industry and um, even commercial fisheries and seeing what can we learn from there and aquaculture to bolster these new sectors of the blue economy. So I, I, I answered your question and I added more things, which I think makes Rhode Island's blue economy unique. It's that innovation um, and creativity in the environment um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're, someone said, and I don't know who said it, is Rhode Island is big enough to matter and small enough to get things done. And I think um, this innovation aspect with uh, programs like 401 TechRidge that Susan's part of is really um, dem- a demonstration of that.
0: That's uh I love that. That's a great I mean that I'm learning <laughs> I'm learning about this this um Rhode Island's a little feisty and they're they they've uh, very connected, very connected uh community and I think that's that's helped and I can see it through your report just how important this uh this uh ocean economy, blue economy, having waterfronts and access is to your state.
2: And and Ashley, if I could just um, add on to what Jen was just mentioning about- Yes, please. Um, the enhancers, or if you will, the, the things that are not easy to potentially put a number directly on, but are so important. Uh, you know, our, our economic impact study, we, we did because we get asked a lot by our legislature or the like, like, well, how many jobs do you have? And what are your forecasts? And how big are you? I mean, things they're comfortable with, and and part of the challenge for us is when we add them up you know we may not even begin to compare say to healthcare or to some of the areas or businesses that you you know just are by virtue of what they are much bigger sectors so it becomes important for us to have like jen said both those those kind of examples and stories and the things that do talk about the quality of life here um and 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 explain why Having harbors with boats in them, and having people have public access to be able to go kayaking, alike, um, you know, that's what we really get out there with. So even though we are much smaller than a lot of sectors, um, we like to say we box above our weight, uh, and and that we also, when there's a big issue facing the state, whatever it may be, uh, you know, we want it, We make sure, and we usually have a seat at the table, uh, and that's important. Um, because it helps the businesses, obviously. But again, I think it is so much a part of what Rhode Island's about. Uh, you know, when the state is off pitching for new businesses to come move to the state, our, you know, our um, commerce, RI, one of the things they put for, you know, front and center is, you know, access to the water, quality of life, what it means to live in the ocean state. Um, and, you know, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I can really feel that. And
0: um, a question for you, Susan, is um, what do you think the Rhode Island economy would lose if the Rhode Island marine trade sector were to disappear? If the value of it was not recognized and decisions were made and it slowly just disappeared,
2: what do you think Rhode Island would lose? Well, you know, it's one of those things I almost couldn't imagine. But, you know, it, well, one of the things when you come to Rhode Island, and, and in part because Narragansett Bay goes, you know, sort of right up in the middle of the, what is the smallest state in the uh, in the nation, but, you know, has an amazing amount of coastline. Uh, and I think there was somewhere a funny statement that we're like 3% bigger at low tide. But, um, you know, if you see in the summertime, you see boats everywhere and you see people out enjoying the water. Uh, and it, part of what might disappear is maybe less usage of the water. But it, it, it's really a year round industry. Um, and we are a because of our geographic location, because of all the depth of the companies and their expertise. I mean, we have some of the best in breed Companies in the world here, whether it's sailmakers or um, people who run marinas, magazines alike, um, and if they weren't here uh, in the winter time, the people where they're bringing their boats for to storage or repair or refits, all of that would go away. Um, the huge amount of people that are here to support. Um, the charter industry, and when people come and uh, take their boats from here down to wherever the Caribbean or the like, there's a whole professional uh, sailor component. It, it just it, it reaches in so many tentacles um, that it it you might not say wow you'd lose this much in jobs, but you'd certainly lose that much in um, just. Use of the waterfront, use of the water, the joy you get when you see people out on the water, it, it it sort of just goes on and on.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, certainly in Rhode Island, there's a lot of cultural ties to the waterfront, and that's very important and sometimes really hard to, to value, but certainly an extremely important part of your state. Um, well, I... I appreciate the time that you ladies have been spending with me today, and I know we're getting getting close, so I just kind of wanted to close out um, thinking out loud with both of you about other states who are maybe considering uh, going through this process of valuing their economy and trying to decide if investing the time is worth it. Do you, uh, Jen, have any... um, Advice or um, I don't know, input that you could provide for those people on um, why that why this is so important and how it could really help them.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the as we all know from whether it be the the data from the U.S. or even internationally, you know, we recognize that our ocean economy, our blue economy, is. Is going to continue to grow leaps and bounds, and um, I think what we're, what we're seeing in Rhode Island is that it's the it's not just one sector; it's that networked, um, collaborative um, interaction ability to innovate amongst sectors that um, will grow a sustainable economy. I, I've heard many times, you know, um, you know, when we're you know, with COVID and whatnot, you know, one way of reinvigorating our economy will be the blue economy, different aspects of the blue economy, but we all need to, um, all sectors and including the educational system, the research, you know, programs, we all need to work together. So I think seeing your blue economy as a comprehensive network system um, and, um, being able to identify leaders within um, within your blue economy um, will help grow uh, your state sustainably. So um, but I, I wouldn't just look at the numbers. Again, as Susan said, you know the numbers are important for one um, sector. but again, it, you know I, I, what the best part of this um, report that you know was, again, the commitment and the, and again, Susan, you said it so eloquently and, you know, these tentacles, it's like goes on and on, you know, yeah, you have um, this, these amazing job opportunities in the blue economy, but it's also where you live. I mean, in Rhode Island, you can, you know, roll out of your bed and go surfing, you know, and that's a part of the blue economy. And you need to remember those aspects, not just the numbers when you're
0: tallying up what the value of your blue economy is. Thank you for that. Susan, is there anything as someone who's on, you know, the private sector side, is there anything you would like to add to
2: that? Um, well, I think, again, being able to define your industry or define the blue economy or your your particular sector within it is it's very helpful um, to be able to have, again, not just the numbers are important because that's what a lot of... Um, particularly state and federal agencies will be looking at. And, you know, that can be because of work concerns about regulations or legislative issues or whatever. But it's also been very helpful for us in terms of being able to to deal with funding and have partnerships with NOAA and URI. So, um, I mean, I think knowing how your industry works and having a profile of it is, is pretty important and pretty helpful. Well, I think you ladies
0: have done a great job of kind of giving us a glimpse into Rhode Island and how important uh, the ocean is to the ocean state of the United States. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay, great. And now we're going to move along the Eastern Seaboard to South Carolina and speak with my next guest. Matthew Gorstein, a Coastal Economic Program Specialist with South Carolina Sea Grant. We do love our Sea Grant programs on this show. So unlike our other guests that we had today, Susan Daly and Jen McCann, we have an actual economist here to help answer some of those questions we contemplated in the previous interview. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thanks, Ashley. Happy to be here.
0: We're so happy to have you. Uh, So Matt's work focuses on marine resource economics um, and also includes some aspects of non-market services, which I had brought up previously and I'm excited to talk about. Uh, So Matt, um, in our last interview, I had started uh, by asking a very generalized question about the blue economy. So from your perspective as an economist, What do you look at and consider when you are assessing the blue economy? What does the blue economy mean to you?
3: Right. So, yeah, I guess we've got a a bunch of different common phrases and and terms that we use. Um, So the blue economy, to me, I think of it as it's really this concept that's, that's defined when economic activity that's derived from the ocean is in balance with the long term capacity of the ocean to support this activity and remain resilient and healthy. Um, so the idea is that this it's a sustainable blue economy that balances the interest of marine-dependent industries as well as the conservation of the natural resources used as inputs in those industries. When measuring it, um commonly, you know, we look at those sort of tried and true industries when you think of when you think of the water, um, such as commercial and recreational fishing, um, port activity, coastal and beach tourism, and things like that. And then um, as well as these non-market ecosystem services that are provided by a healthy coastal ecosystem. So we've talked about habitats like wetlands and sand dunes and oyster reefs that provide valuable economic benefits to coastal communities as well.
0: I know in our previous discussion, you had talked about that you have been with the Sea Grant for about two years now. Um, And one of the first things uh, that you did being brought on was uh, a report assessing South Carolina's ocean economy. And before we talk about that, I just wanted to, you know, ask if you had any idea about how um, how was the South Carolina blue economy historically been? How has the South Carolina blue economy historically been valued and what innovations are you using to think about value valuing it now so essentially like what's what what did it look like before and what's changed
3: right and so i guess yeah jumping off what i said prior so typically you know commercial fishing and ports are the big ones when when people think of the blue economy uh, tourism is a big one as well of course it can sometimes be difficult to parse out tourism that's dependent upon the blue economy from other Uh, sorts of tourism as well. Um, And also in some states, recreational fishing is just as big, if not bigger, of an economic driver than commercial fishing when you consider, you know, boat, gear, equipment purchases and and charter operations and things like that. Um, But I would say a a big issue for me is the inclusion of these non-market economic benefits in in trying to assess and measure the blue economy. Um, So when I talk about non-market economic benefits Really, what I'm referring to is economic activity that does not have market transactions and therefore does not typically have a price associated with it. Um, so the benefits that a healthy coastal ecosystem provide, while it's you know fishing grounds and excellent recreation space, uh, these other benefits, which we also refer to as ecosystem services, so they can both be uh, they can be both market-based and non-market-based benefits. So like an example of a market-based ecosystem service would be commercial fishing. So we have a price associated with the fish, uh, and we can use that to estimate the value of of this food provisioning ecosystem service. But non-market benefits include things like coastal protection that's provided by natural habitats when they suck up flood water or reduce wave energy. Uh, They can also include carbon storage benefits. So when coastal habitats like wetlands sequester carbon and prevent it from being released into the atmosphere. And so I think acknowledging these non-market benefits as additional economic drivers on top of the market ones that we normally think of is important for sort of understanding the entirety of the blue economy and having this more holistic understanding of how natural resources can provide valuable economic benefits when kept in healthy condition.
0: And I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I am excited to talk about that a little later on in this interview. Um, but so in in writing and um, starting your position and in looking at assessing South Carolina's ocean economy um, was this something that you know you were gun ho about or Sea Grant program really wanted to do or were there other people who were just kind of pushing for this to happen?
3: So it's a little bit of all of the above. Um, so when I came into this role, it was a priority for, for South Carolina Sea Grant to produce this sort of information. And the reason why it was a priority is because all of our priorities are stakeholder and community driven. So this is the type of data and information that our constituents and stakeholders were asking for. You know, people ask, what's the value of fishing here? Or, How can I value my beach um, and those sorts of things? Also, it's it's certainly an interest of mine um, coming from my background as a a natural resource economist. Um, And so what I set out to do was to basically create a sort of one-stop shop uh, for any and all data and information related to South Carolina's ocean economy. Um, So this is meant to be a synthesis of all the, the, the data and publications that I could find that addressed all of these sectors that we consider in the ocean economy.
0: That sounds like a heavy lift. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in your pro- if you wouldn't mind um, taking us through that process a little bit. I mean, where do you even start in that, and where do you look for the data?
3: Sure. And so, that's yeah, a great question. The first thing I started with um, with federal agencies, so things like NOAA, uh, Office for Coastal Management. They have the Economics National Ocean Watch data, the ENow data, which is a uh, standardized time series uh, that tracks economic activity in the what they can what they define as the ocean economy in these six sectors of of living resources, marine transportation, marine construction, ship and boat building, tourism and recreation, and offshore mineral extraction. Um, so starting with NOAA and then moving also into NOAA Fisheries Service, where they track commercial fishery landings, recreational, uh, economic impact expenditures. Um, there's also uh, port economic activity data can be found at the U.S. Census Bureau uh, through their USA Trade Online statistics. Um, and then after moving through federal agencies, of course, there's also the, the USDA. They do a census of aquaculture uh, every five years, so that's also a valuable data source uh, as well. Um, after the federal agencies and sort of getting all the data I could from them, uh, I then moved on to state agencies. So things like um, our State Department of Natural Resources, our State Department of Parks, Recreation and Tourism, our uh, Office for Coastal and Ocean Resource Management. So they had a, a wide variety of more, I guess some more detailed data, right that can drill down into these into localities, into state levels, things that sometimes you know the federal data isn't meant to address. And while the federal data can give this high level, Know, overview, and you can look at trends. Um, it's also useful to to see what's available locally at your state or at your municipality, um, and, and glean data from those sources as well. Um, sometimes the data that you can get from the state or local uh, officials will be more recent than than some of the federal data, as it takes time to curate and QAQC QA, all that data until it's available. Um, and then after the state agencies, I moved into uh, peer-reviewed literature and then also gray literature, technical reports to look at any sort of one-off studies that were done that uh, estimated or measured any part of what we would consider to be in the ocean economy.
0: I don't think I was expecting quite that much, but i I know with Jen and Susan I talked about the enow data, And, um, would you say that it's, it's for states and, uh, municipalities that are looking to undertake this work, um, would you say that that's a great way to start, maybe start from that upper level? And then as you said, all of those other resources are, are, um, how you get a better, more clear picture of what's going on in the waterfront.
3: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's definitely an excellent place to start, um, The data, it's available at national, state, and county levels. They've also added data on um, self-employed workers. So not only does it track jobs and income related to people that work at uh, establishments, but it also tracks the number of self-employed workers that are working in the ocean economy, which is especially of interest in the living marine resources sector, where we have a lot of operations that are sole proprietorships. Uh, So the fact that you're able to get an idea of, of that, of those self-employed workers and the, the revenue generated by them is also a, a great addition.
0: So, you know, it sounds like you you got in the thick of it really with this report. And so as a result of all that work and background um, research, um, can you give us, uh, a lot of us who maybe have never been to South Carolina or have uh, don't live there, um, kind of paint us a picture of what the major economic features of, uh, South Carolina's blue economy are, um, more so in like the geographic regions, as far as like from North to South, like these are the features you'll find on the waterfront rather than just sector.
3: Yeah, sure. So in, in South Carolina, so I'll start North to South, you know, up in the North, we have the Myrtle beach or grand strand area, which is a, a big, uh, driver of tourism in the state. Um, I don't have the the county data in front of me, but I I do know that two-thirds of all the visitor expenditures in South Carolina occur in the eight coastal counties, um, and then the other third occur in the other 38 counties. So it indicates that the coastal area is a big driver of tourism in the state. Um, Certainly, we see that a lot in in Myrtle Beach, where they have lots of Beaches, hotels, seafood restaurants, golfing is is a big deal up there as well. Um, As you move south down the coast into um, Merle's Inlet, there's uh, there's some working waterfront there um, where we have there's shrimp docks, seafood docks, uh, waterfront restaurants, boat ramps, and these sorts of things. It gets a little more rural as you go into Georgetown County, um, and then down into Charleston County, up in the north part of Charleston County, just south of Georgetown, we have uh, McClellanville, which is a, a small uh, fishing town that um, actually takes in a lot of the shrimp that, that comes into South Carolina. They have a, a, a working waterfront there in McClellanville that, that Sea Grant is is helping um, with the sort of strategizing on what the future of that working waterfront looks like. Um, you can get you know all kinds of really good fresh seafood up in there. And then as you move down into the Charleston area, um, you have the sort of people come here for the history, the architecture, and then also for for the fresh seafood um, as well. So plenty of restaurants. You know, it's like a big food tourism town now. Um, Local oysters are are a big deal and and really are in high demand for for people that are eating out around town here. Um, And that's where I live is in the Charleston area. Uh, But as you move south into Beaufort, it gets a little more rural again. That's where we have a lot of our shellfish aquaculture operations are, are going to be in that Buford area. There's also a, a, a big local food scene down there. Um, and then south of there is Hilton Head Island, which is, again, a big tourism golf area, not as um, heavily populated as Myrtle Beach, but still a pretty popular area just north of Savannah. Um, that's kind of the rundown of the coast. I probably missed a lot of good stuff, but that's a short one of it.
0: No, I think that was a great, that was a great overview. I mean, it certainly makes me want to visit because <laughs> there's a lot going on there <laughs> and I'm interested in, in what you said about McClellanville and, uh, and Sea Grant working with them. It's, it sounded like the, to, to help them like value and assess, um, the- well, I think
3: it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's seen as a real cultural asset in, in the community and the community has a rich history and maritime heritage and, and shrimping and, and all kinds of, you know, sort of waterman related activities. Um, but so there's, there's a, a business there um, that the, the owner is getting a, a, a little older and we're basically trying to help them come up with a plan so that the waterfront stays in its, um, I don't want to say in its current form, but in a form to where um, the docks can be used as a working waterfront that the shrimpers can drop off their catch. Um, there's there's lots of there's development pressure, and, and you know certainly recognize the economic potential of of development. Um, but it's a uh, the community there wants to sort of maintain their culture and the character of that working waterfront and access to that working waterfront so that um, their sort of their heritage can be maintained and so that different pressures and, and, you know, development and that kind of thing doesn't block off access to that working waterfront for the fishermen in the community.
0: That's what, I mean, that's really one of the biggest reasons why we started doing this podcast series is just to highlight those things. And I'm so glad you, you put it into words. Um, and so I would imagine a report, uh, like the one you completed could be helpful for that community to, you know, look, there's, there's you know, not only cultural value here, but economic value that we should certainly not ignore. So that's wonderful. Um, so, and uh, as you, earlier, and you were talking about the tourism. So according to the report, um, tourism and recreation of the ocean sector there make up 87%, um, which indicates it's it's a driving sector there. Um, so, what are the, some ways elected officials can use this information to make decisions about future planning? Like, you know, for instance, you know, building housing or development. Um, is there any examples you can think of to, to answer that?
3: So, yeah, tourism is definitely a big driver of the ocean economy here, um, in the order of billions of dollars. So, in having some, you know, conversations with some of our contacts at the, the South Carolina Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. You know, their position is sort of that, you know, the natural beauty um, is an economic asset to South Carolina that helps the state compete with, with other tourism destinations. So that's to say, you know, a good a good amount of our visitors come here for natural beauty, outdoor recreation, rural character and marine activities. And so, you know, healthy, wide beaches, clean waterways, scenic views that are that are unobstructed by big development and this you know, maritime cultural heritage. They can be drivers of tourism dollars in South Carolina. So really, you know, the state has a vested interest in environmental conservation to ensure that this economic activity is sort of realized into the future. Um, So, you know, knowing what, so from a transportation perspective, like you alluded to, like knowing what roads are heavily trafficked by both in-state and out-of-state visitors they can help the state uh, Department of Transportation prioritize different roads for maintenance Um, And as I mentioned before, there's also this sort of this burgeoning food tourism sector in South Carolina, especially in Charleston and and the low country area. So people want to come here. They want to eat fresh seafood like oysters and shrimp and crabs and flounder and snapper. And so ensuring that there's you know this ample working waterfront space for local fishers and harvesters to offload their catch so that it's available to restaurants is important for meeting the demand of all these food tourists who want to eat local seafood. Um, And so, as of course, as local restaurants serve more local seafood, more of that economic value is retained in the community as well. Um, And then, you know, available sort of working waterfront space can help ensure this local economic stimulus.
0: And I mean, I know here in Texas, um, a lot of our coast depends on tourism. And um, certainly through COVID-19 and and the obstacles of the pandemic over the last year, we've seen a lot of uh, downfalls. But just it sounds like no, I mean, having a good assessment of um, those answers, like you were saying, like, where do they travel and what do they hang out with could help a community or a state plan for um, these obstacles that that have been faced through COVID-19. Um, so, I want to get onto one of my favorite topics, which is um, the non-market value that you had mentioned earlier. Um, was this so... Just to jump off, um, including non-market values into your report, was that something um, that was kind of your idea or where did that idea come from? Because I know here in Texas, we've been struggling with that question a lot and figuring out how to value it too. And so it's not a concluded in a lot of our reports. And when I spoke with them in Rhode Island, that's not something they included as well. So what was the motivation behind including those aspects?
3: Yeah, so that was sort of my idea uh, to include. So a lot of the reports that I had read um, acknowledged ecosystem services in a qualitative way and sort of acknowledging that there's more economic potential here that we're not addressing in this report. So I wanted to at least make an attempt to estimate economic benefits for ecosystem services in South Carolina where it might be appropriate to do so, and by appropriate, I mean like where we have enough data, information, peer-reviewed literature uh, to to estimate values for these things. So what I did, I didn't do any uh, you know primary data collection for the estimates that that I put into the report, but it was really a, a literature review and um, what economists call a benefit transfer. So where I was looking for any studies that were done in South Carolina that estimated values for ecosystem services for coastal habitats here. Um, and so I restricted the geography to South Carolina, You know, I restricted the, the habitats to what we have here, and then did a, a review of the literature to find um, ecosystem benefits, ecosystem service benefits that I could then transfer um, into values uh, for this report. Um, so um, a couple of things we looked at were coastal protection benefits, provided by wetlands. So there was a, a 2020 study that was done that we cited to use, to, to find values for that. We, um, we used some literature on carbon sequestration rates in South Carolina and then also used the Environmental Protection Agency's social cost of carbon to estimate uh, the carbon storage economic benefits that wetlands provide. Um, there were some studies that looked at how Healthy and wide beaches can enhance property values on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. So we use that study as well. Um, it was certainly not an exhaustive ecosystem service valuation effort. It was really just um, where we were confident that we had, you know, defensible, robust values. So most of the ecosystem services went unestimated in the report. I would say, you know, we have this vast array of other services that we just don't have enough data and information in South Carolina to to come up with values for um, in a benefit transfer fashion. So really, I mean, we need more primary data collection studies uh, to to get at those values, which we're hoping to to do more of in the future, certainly.
0: That was great, um, and I agree with you. And I think that's something that uh, Sea Grant uh, nationally is is kind of assessing uh, more so. Is how do we value these? And I know one things that, for example, like wetlands, they can um, you know absorb. Uh, water and release it back slowly. They can help with uh, wave action attenuation. And so in assessing um, some of the benefits of that, uh, do you did you look at or is looking at um, like damage uh, avoided, like for all the properties and housing behind it, like that was also something a part of it?
3: Yeah. So typically when you look at coastal protection value, the damages avoided method is, is kind of one of the go-to's. Um, so the the study that we relied on for estimating this uh, ecosystem service benefit was a 2020 study, and it was done by Sun and Carson. And it actually um, derived estimates uh, for a bunch of coastal counties along the eastern seaboard. I don't I don't know if it made its way into the Gulf, so I apologize to Texas. But um, it actually the the study found that coastal protection benefits. Can range from fifteen hundred to seventeen thousand dollars per hectare per year, depending on the county in South Carolina specifically. Uh, and actually, when when multiplied by the area of wetlands in South Carolina, based on uh, the National Wetlands Inventory, the total economic benefits of coastal protection provided by wetlands in South Carolina is estimated at just over three point nine billion dollars per year. So you know we see these these. Pretty substantial, you know, economic benefit estimates when we look at, um, you know, this natural capital that that's sitting out there, that the wetlands that are present that that help attenuate that wave energy and help store floodwaters and and minimize property damage.
0: So, a report like this and and studies like that can can certainly show that there there is some value in not developing land, right?
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, so. The non-market things that those benefits, I think, are important to take into account for any sort of cost-benefit analysis when you're evaluating different options for land use, whether this is adapt- adaptation to climate change uh, or whether it's, you know, deciding whether or not to develop an area or where to develop an area.
0: That's, um, and, and for our audience members, um, the, the name of the report again is assessing South Carolina's ocean economy, and it is available for the public. And a lot of the studies that Matt is talking about right now are in the appendix and in there. So if you are interested or want to get a, like a start on how to do that, I, I highly recommend that you visit that report. It's really, it's incredible. I enjoyed reading it. Um, so something, so if this, You know, kind of like an overall like thinking about the report and stuff. If states aren't, you know, valuing their blue economy, or if decision makers aren't, you know, looking at that, what can you speak to what opportunities could be missed as to not valuing?
3: Yeah. Sure. So I mean we this this is discussed in the report a little bit, but so when you measure and assess the the trends, the size of the ocean economy. Um, it allows decision makers to evaluate this economic activity in the ocean economy sectors relative to other sectors that we always think of like manufacturing and construction and textiles and finance. Um, so I would say if, you, if the ocean economy is not considered or if it's overlooked, you know, there, we risk missing opportunities to foster collaboration between even within the ocean economy sectors and also fostering collaboration between ocean economy and non-ocean economy sectors. Um, There's also could be potential missed opportunities to develop this coordinated policy vision for supporting sustainable economic growth across all industries. Um, And so since the ocean economy depends on natural resources as inputs, right? We need fish to catch them. We need a healthy beach to recreate on. Um, by coupling these economic data with ecological data concerning these natural resource inputs, decision makers can identify ways to sort of strike that sustainable balance between conservation and economic activity, uh, especially in an era of climate change. Um, and then one, one other thing I'll add is in terms of tracking the ocean economy. Um, for South Carolina, the ocean economy has actually grown at a faster rate than the economy as a whole since the end of the Great Recession in 2009. Um, So in in real dollars and inflation-adjusted dollars, uh, the ocean economy has grown 53% in South Carolina between uh, 2009 and 2017, um, compared to just 22% for the state of South Carolina as a whole. So uh, what this suggests is that the ocean economy has been of some importance in South Carolina's recovery from the recession um, and investing in the ocean economy to foster this sustainable growth that also ensures natural resource health can be seen as a good, as a good investment uh, by elected officials.
0: Yeah. If that isn't a ringing endorsement, I don't know what is. I, do you know um, just offhand and it's okay if you don't, um, if that's like the general trend uh, for the whole country, if, if the ocean economy seems to be growing at a, at a faster rate than the the overall GDP.
3: That's yeah, that is the case nationally as well.
0: That's excellent. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, Looking ahead, uh, what sectors did you find um, part in South Carolina are projected for growth or what, what are you guys looking ahead to?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so a couple of things that that jump out. So the first thing that I talked about in the report is sort of what you know, the future of South Carolina's ocean economy was oyster mariculture, clam mariculture. Um, so in South Carolina, this is a pretty rapidly growing industry. It's still small compared to a lot of other states. Uh, north of us, uh, but it is growing. Um, So actually the inflation adjusted dockside value of oyster mariculture in South Carolina has grown from about $31,000 in 2012 to about $950,000 in 2019. So a really big increase over the course of seven years. Um, And actually about a year ago, uh, the state of South Carolina lifted a moratorium on importing oyster seed north of the state um, so for, for a few years, there was a moratorium on importing any oyster seed north of South Carolina over concerns about disease transfer, uh, but that moratorium was lifted. Um, so this could bode well for future industry growth. Um, and this industry is also a good one to point out for the the valuable ecosystem service benefits provided by growing oysters in the waterways as well. So water quality enhancement, shoreline stabilization. You know, of course, we we have to acknowledge competing uses of waterways, so you know, oyster mariculture, while it's a growing industry, it may not be suitable in every area, um, but, but it is a, an, a, an industry that connects pretty deeply to the, the culture of South Carolina and, and the waterfront. Um, there's also, of course, offshore energy. Um, so actually, according to a 2016 report by the National Renewable Energy Lab, South Carolina has the sixth highest offshore wind energy potential in the United States. Um, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has identified wind energy call areas off the South Carolina coast. That was done a few years ago, and development of offshore wind farms has not yet begun in the state. Uh, but we there has there is uh, economic potential for this. I cited a study that was done by Clemson University in the report, um, for those who would like to read a little further. Uh, but the last thing I'll talk about um, for growth sectors, nature-based tourism is another one worth mentioning. Uh, especially in a post-COVID reality where people want to spend more time in an outdoor setting that's deemed to be more safe as we, we still navigate our way through this pandemic. Um, so nature-based tourism is this broad term with sort of a debated definition, but it covers tourism experiences centered on wild or natural environments. Uh, there's also the subset of nature-based tourism, which we call ecotourism, which is looked at more as non-extractive, minimally invasive sustainable activities that are centered around the appreciation of nature, um, that are also meant to empower the host communities that manage the areas. Um, A recent study um, that was sponsored by Sea Grant estimated that between 7 and 14% of coastal county visitor expenditures can be attributed to nature-based tourism. So that's one where we might see some growth in the coming years as well as people want to spend more time doing activities outside.
0: Yeah, lots to look af- look forward to. That's exciting. Um, I love that about nature based tourism. I know in Texas we finally a couple of years ago passed a legislature so we can do oyster aquaculture and start getting that going. So we're we're ramping up there and we're pretty excited about it. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, Matt. I was just um, thinking about, I know, um, you know, being more inclusive and stuff is is something that Sea Grant programs have been trying to consider. And um, was this report like aspects of this report or did, was there uh, strategies that you did to make this report more accessible? I mean, I know for decision makers, it's very important but for the public in general, or even taking pride in their state, like were there ways you tried to make this more accessible to the public?
3: Yeah, so there's actually an infographic that accompanies the report. That's also, that can be found on our website, South Carolina, um, There's a landing page for the report where you can access the PDF. And there's also this infographic that is really just a high level overview of the direct economic contributions based on the Enow data. Um, and then the nuts and bolts and all the all the details and citations that are in the report. But so the infographic is nice to pass around at conferences it's nice to give to uh, you know, state legislature representatives and things like that um, And then for those who want to read the whole report you know we, we've printed copies of those as well um, and everything is is 508 compliant on the website so if you have um, vision or hearing disabilities you should be able to consume the content as well-hmm.
0: That's, yeah, that's, we we are considering infographics because I know that's helpful for people who don't have, you know, uh, a level of, you know, reading for reports and stuff, reading level. So it can be great. But, um, for you, Matt, what are, what are you looking ahead to? What's, what's in the future for you? What's next? Uh,
3: that's a good question. Um, so we've been, um, Doing lots of of grant proposals, (laughs) really. Um, So we are uh, at least the McClellanville front. So we're hoping to, um, we want to put together a a feasibility study or uh, to a business plan, really, to help them make the best decision on a a fisheries and aquaculture training center. Um, So there's, um, as I kind of alluded to uh, earlier, there's issues with... um, Not uh, So young fishermen aren't entering the industry like they were in the past. Um, So we're looking at ways in which we can provide opportunities, educational workforce training opportunities for people who want to get into fisheries or aquaculture industry. Um, And so that kind of continues the work we've been doing with the McClellanville working waterfront stuff. Um, Also, what we're working on is... um, Working more with our diverse and underserved communities um, and, and building capacity in some organizations to help them obtain eligibility to get federal funding. Um, so helping people incorporate as nonprofits and register on grants.gov so that they can go after federal funds. And we've been helping nonprofit organizations develop grant proposals uh, to help them address environmental justice concerns in their communities. Um so really, a lot of that, and I keep, you know, obviously keep tracking and monitoring the, the ocean economy data. There will be, there should be a um, an update to the report in a couple of years. We plan on doing it. We've said to do it every other year, um, so that would be 2022 would be the next update. Um, yeah, really, just a lot of a lot of different stuff going on.
0: Staying busy. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I look forward to that update. And I look forward to maybe talking to you more about how the report has been used. I know it recently just came out. So it's hard to say that yet. But I, that'll be interesting. Um, well, thank you so much. And and for again, for our audience, um, the report is assessing South Carolina's ocean economy. Sorry, I had to look through my notes. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I'll provide some information about the ENow data and how it's publicly available. Great, great resource to start with. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking to you.
3: Thanks, Ashley. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode of the National Working Waterfront podcast. The two reports we talked about today are available online, so please go check those out if you're interested. And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get this and all of the other great shows available for free wherever you get your pods. Have a great day.